Welcome to another episode of Exploring Art Podcast, a Florida International University student podcast for the creative curious. I'm your host, Nalisha DeCastro. I'm very pleased to have Jonathan here with us today. Thank you so much for the introduction, and it's Johnny. Thank you for asking about preference. I get that asked a lot. And welcome to the Exploring Art Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and let's learn about some cool stuff today. Probably something you haven't heard of or may have heard of. Anyways, let's explore some of these themes. Today we will be delving into the beautiful artwork of Michelangelo Merisi da Caravico, an extraordinary Italian painter that got his name by shedding a light on the religion through large-scale, intense realism. For this podcast, we will be zeroing on his conversion of St. Paul piece, a painting illustrating a horse and two men in battle. It reminds me of somewhat, somewhat of the creation of Adam portrait by Michelangelo, only with more of a violent tone. However, Jacob Buckhart, Bernard Berenson, and Rudolf Wittkauer have different take on what the painting may mean. Our goal is that by analyzing this painting and picking out certain points of symbolism, we can eventually declare which writer is correct in their interpretation of the painting. How does that sound? I think that sounds like an excellent idea. And actually, funny enough, speaking of... Jacob Burkhardy, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I may butcher some of these last names, but eh, it comes what it is. We're all human after all. Anyways, speaking of Jacob Burkhardy, he was one of, um, yeah, he was a Swiss historian who was ranked one of the most renowned art critics of the 19th century. Like this guy was a really big deal. And what, what he was most known for really is how the way he studied Renaissance art of Italy, really. To this day, he still remains a very influential, very influential historiographer. Which, if you didn't know, including me, I didn't know. I had to Google this myself. A historiographer is basically the study of historical writing, art. You know what we're kind of discussing here today. Anyways, for the early, he, yeah, he was best known as being a historiographer for the early Renaissance of Italy and even the High Renaissance of Rome. He's most well known for his book. Um, called let's see here i haven't written my notes i'm so sorry it's called the civilization of the renaissance in italy it was originally published in 1860 and what really separated burkhardy from others is how the way he treated these time periods as a whole and really examining the social institutions of said periods so instead of just seeing a small part so if i were to examine this time period maybe i'll talk about the highlights i'll talk about the lows instead of seeing the whole picture of a whole as like a whole and imagining how this affects these people in like their day-to-day lives i'm not sure if that makes sense but to me i really can understand why he was a very big deal really and why he was such a significant figure and quite renowned at that too and of course since we would um we're kind of talking about historians kind of wrong not to bring up as well Bernard Bernstein, who was also specialized in Renaissance studying, in fact, but he was not the same. He's not the same guy, all right? 
What made what really separated Bernard was that he was an American art historian who played a pivotal role, like a very significant role in raising like art collecting interests back in America. Like he was the guy you would go to if you wanted to be into this sort of stuff. And he made it really, really accessible. The way he played um a good role and how he really helped these collectors is that let's say you got a lot of money. You got a lot of spare cash and you're very interested in decorating your fancy home with some authentic renaissance art now if you know literally nothing you don't know what you're going in you're you don't know what you're looking for really for all you know i could just accidentally buy something that someone tells me it's the real thing and oh oh it's a scam up oh, well what's this painting is this so valuable no no it's worthless but that's where bernard came in handy like bernard was really handy that he helped he played a he was sort of like an advisor, as you can say. Um, and the way he really did that, he released several books, including the, like the Aesthetics of History and Visual Art, which was originally released all the way back in 1948. And what Bernard really did is he helped really tell if this was authentic or not. Like his verdict was so renowned that it could dramatically, like dramatically increase the value of a painting. If it had a Bernard seal of approval, that price point would just jump up significantly. And, you know, since we're kind of doing all this talk about, you know, art historians, critique, historic, I even forgot how to say the word I just taught us today. Oh, I'm so sorry, but makes you, I think I should also answer for us because I'm sure a lot of us really want to know is what exactly makes an art connoisseur like what the heck does it even do? Well, that's a pretty simple question in itself. Um, to really put it simply, in a connoisseur, an art connoisseur to be exact, what their job is specifically is to evaluate works of art on the basis of their experience of the style and technique of artists. Okay, that's what I have written down. <laughs> so their findings of what they see in a painting is very crucial in pronouncing value so that it could be organized in a certain way or even place value so that it could be collected a lot easier so you know a good example of this would be like what we're talking about berenson bernard berenson is a very very good example of this so i think really that's what really tells what an art connoisseur a bit more in the lives of these two very 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 influential connoisseur historians however you want to call them and i just find it really fascinating about like their lives their great works and what the way they contributed to the art field in their own way not necessarily really making like works of art themselves but their own literary works that help really critique and see art in its own different way you know it's interesting learning about these critics. Thanks, Jonathan. It makes sense why they analyzed the painting the way that they did. Like I mentioned before, Caravaggio is an Italian painter with a realistic medium. Some of his most famous works being Judas, Judith Beheading Holofernes, Narcissus, and, the court, and of course, the conversion of St. Paul. A common theme in all of these paintings being violence or self-reflection, in my opinion. This makes sense due to his history with violence, something that oozes into his artwork. In 1606, four years before his death, he was sentenced to death for murdering a man, then proceeded to flee from authorities. I mentioned his troubling past, his troubling background, because it has to do a lot with the painting in question. As a psychoanalyst myself, I took a psychological approach when looking into the illustration. 
From a psychological standpoint, he is depicting his pain and anger for the world. His deep-rooted desire to fight and kill, but also inner defeat as he tries to find strength in religion. I see it almost as if he is portraying in a more detailed form of his inner battle with the angel and devil on his shoulders. For example, the horse, something that all, all of the other critics speak about. A ho the horse is initially supposed to represent freedom and courage, and in Christianity may sometimes symbolize death. This then leads to the following question, what is actually dying? Is he representing his own demise? The death of his mental freedom? The death of his courage? Is he trying to find strength in religion but held back by his own troubles and trauma? Is it the death of his hypocrisy? It is all a possibility, especially when we look into the history of what he is demonstrating in the portrait. He is telling the story of St. Paul, the Apostle or Saul. St. Paul betrayed the Christian church by murdering many Christians. He was eventually blinded, which is also unknown, which is also unknown whether it was literal or in a spiritual sense. Either or could be correct, depending on how one looks at it. Nevertheless, after being blinded, he looked towards God in hopes of purifying his heart and mind. He stopped murdering Christians and devoted himself to the religion. I retell the story of St. Paul as it shows that he too had his own angel and devil on his shoulder. Battling between killing and, and evil and spiritual purity. Maybe this was Caravaggio's cry for help or salvation. But also, maybe this is a mere depiction of humanity's battle with what's morally good or bad and our need for answers. When there isn't an answer, where do we turn to to find it? Science? Religion? Our imagination? For this reason, I agree with Rudolf Wittekauer. Wittekauer's interpretation of the painting, because there's so much depth in it. What do you think, Jonathan? Am I just reading too much into this? What's funny is that when you say that, I don't really think there's a way to really look into things too much, really, because that's kind of like the beautiful things of art, is that we can really look into absolutely everything, pointing out things that were intentional and even things that are entirely unintentional that the artist didn't plan for, but matches symbolism perfectly. Like, I really agree with you of what Caravaggio is really trying to illustrate within his work, especially with his ties to his religion. One thing that was very well known for any, like, Italian painter or, like, any Renaissance painter, a lot of European painters in general, is that a lot of it really ties back into their religion, like, very heavily. I mean, look at the Sistine Chapel. That's literally a religious work in itself. But I really do agree in in uh, connecting it with the story of St. Paul, which I didn't know of myself, but after reading through it, I could really see how it can be connected. Especially the way you tie in your symbolism from the horrors to being blind to seeking redemption after you've done something so wrong. It really, really illustrated perfectly what Caravaggio was definitely probably feeling at the time. I mean, he was fleeing from authorities, but he still created work. I think your, you being a, a little psychoanalysis really helped us out here because it really helps us like dig deep into the surface. Because uh, I think it really is important to understand what his mindset really was to want to connect to such a dark place. But even though it was a dark place, he was very much very easily able to connect to it. 
and such great use of symbolism too, really. I fully agree with you, honestly, without a doubt. Rudolf Wittkower is a British historian who focuses on Italian art. He believes in harmonic proportions and humanism during the Renaissance era. He looks for it in the paintings he critiques, which makes sense when understanding his perspective on the painting in question. When analyzing the painting, he says, In the conversion of St. Paul, he, Carbaccio, rendered visions solely on the level of inner illumination, like the counter-reformation religious reformers. Caravaggio pleaded through his pictures for a man's direct gnosis on the divine. Like them, he regarded illumination by God as a tangible experience on a hu purely human level. He pinpointed the humanistic standpoint of the painting, as I did, in attempting to find the hidden message slash connection between the painting, its history, and the artist. Alrighty, final question. How do we decide which one of these talented writers is right? Ooh, that is a very, very difficult question because all these writers are very, very equally talented and on their own right. And what really makes them stand apart is their own unique perspectives. But if I were to pick one, and I am a bit biased when I say that because I, what I really do appreciate compared to like the rest of them, like compared to all of them, I really like Jacob Burghardy's the way he approached things because instead of like taking like pieces or like let's say making a priority to make it easy for a critic or make it easy for collectors to collect, I really appreciated how Burghardy really tried to approach everything as like the grander scheme of a picture because it's very easy to like look at any time period or significant event and just assume, okay, we're only going to look at this and this and not really think what kind of led to this. Well, we're like the lives of the people to like, develop a culture that makes this symbolic where this is the culture to them and i really really do think that jacob burkhardy's really stands out amongst that like within his books the civilization of the renaissance and the high rent with the, like the way he analyzed the renaissance i really think it stands out to me amongst all these other writers that may be me but that's what really, like, what stands out to me, really. But apart from that, these are all very, very, very talented writers in their own right. In the end, I think that it all depends on how much one looks into the painting and what the individual chooses to focus on. Either one of these writers could be right, and there's a possibility that all of them could be wrong. That's something that we'll never truly know. Alrighty, thank you everyone for tuning in. This concludes the Exploring Art Podcast. Jonathan and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Subscribe to Exploring Art Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon. And remember, stay curious.